Welcome to Wappy Hour, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. This past winter, the WAP Book Club read Finding Calcutta, What Mother Teresa Taught Me About Meaningful Work and Service by Dr. Mary Poplin. What you're about to hear is our final call together, where Dr. Poplin joined us for conversation about the book and her current work and life in the university. We hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Thank you for being on the call, everyone, and especially a warm welcome to Dr. Popnip. But I have to say about her, probably everyone knows, but I will restate them anyway. Dr. Popnip is from Texas and earned her PhD in education from the University of Texas. She is the professor of education at Claremont Graduate University. And previously there, she has served both as director of the teacher education program and also as the Dean of the School of Educational Studies. As we know, she worked with Mother Teresa and the Missionaries of Charity in Calcutta. And apart from finding Calcutta that we all enjoyed and appreciated, she has also written, Is Reality Secular? Testing the Assumption of Four Global Worldviews, which IVP published in 2013. And as was mentioned, she has spoken at Veritas forums across the country. Mary also works on the application of the intellectual, social, and psychological principles of the Judeo-Christian worldview as they apply to higher education, particularly among culturally and linguistically diverse peoples and the poor. And I think a cool fact about her is that in the past six or so months, she's been featured twice in Christianity Today, most recently in the January-February issue. And so we are very privileged and honored that you should be with us also today so that we can like have our own private chat with you. Thank so. you. Well, the privilege is mine. It's really nice to uh, hear voices of old friends and people that I've met along the way. So it's really good. I'm just sorry we're not all in the same room. And I'm sorry I can't get Zoom to work on my old computer that's in Texas. <laughs> but I guess I would just mean you know pretty much most things about me probably because I'm pretty open in my writing and everything. I guess what I would say is in the end of Mother Teresa's book, I was just entering my intellectual crisis. And I would say that that intellectual crisis is uh, not over, maybe even greater. I think it's turned into a grief because over the years, I've seen that it's not just that I struggle to know, to uh, look at Christianity and the principles and premises of my field of education, but I've begun to see the the damage that's done to young people when they come into the academy who have been Christians and those who have not, and the damage done to them in terms of what they're being taught. When I went to orientation, it was you know, how do you get your classes? What's the college look like? How do you act? What what are you going to be required to do? Now it's all about sort of radical left left wing thinking, and it's basically almost like brainwashing. So it's become much more serious than it was when I wrote the book, and and so that so instead of I think it's a, in the book. I well I know in the book I suggested that. One of the problems was that Christians didn't have a place to go for graduate school. But now I think that that what we really need to do is to 
have a strategy for influencing the culture and that people who are associated with the academic world are going we're going to have to step up and begin to write and talk publicly not just uh, in our intellectual journals quite frankly i remember when i was in graduate school being wild <laughs> and associating with people who were designing a way to influence the culture and kind of take it over and their thoughts were that they needed to take over three institutions they needed to take over the university they needed to and other education but starting with the university they needed to take over the media and they needed to take over the banks and that's pretty much been done and we don't we've never really developed a strategy i think christians on the one hand myself included um, we don't like to think of fighting <laughs> and and things like that but i don't see we don't really see how we're going to survive if we don't uh, begin to influence the culture. So what I've been trying to do is to find what I call forerunners. These are people who are Christian who are writing not only in the academic journals, but they're also getting into public, the sort of public media like the Atlantic Magazine or the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. And they're having some success getting in. It's not that they don't get attacked in the end, but they are sort of, they are doing things. One of my favorite examples is in, I think it was fall of 2017, Tyler Vanderveel, who's a young uh, uh, epidemiologist at Harvard, paired up with a USA Today editor, former editor, and they wrote an article on his research, which was basically he did a big data dump to figure out what was the biggest predictor of life satisfaction and life longevity in the United States. And he found that regular church attendance was the number one factor. So it's I, I personally believe that there's there with the exception of the origin controversy, there's probably no principle in the Bible that couldn't be shown to be true empirically and shown to be better. So that's been kind of where my intellectual crisis has gone. And so we're trying to develop we're developing something called the upper room gatherings. And so if any of you are interested, <laughs> I'll send you an application. And the upper room gatherings would bring people together who want to do this, who are academics and people who are also journalists or other people who want to be involved. And we would get together and rethink our field by field, rethink our fields through Christian principles, and then begin to strategize how do we get this out into the larger culture. That's kind of where, where my head is. <laughs> I know it's a long way from Mother Teresa, but it just seems like, and I, th I think I say this, it's like... A lot of times, and maybe it's just with people who are so hard-headed like me, but it seems like God takes our grievings and turns them into our our calling. I think that's certainly what happened to her. I mean, she was she really kind of just looked out. She was teaching very wealthy girls, and she looked out on the streets in Calcutta, and she just couldn't bear it. So. She couldn't bear what she saw. And so her grief actually led to her, to what she did, her call. And I, I feel like that's uh, maybe true for all of us. I'm not sure. I mean, I know a lot of people it is true for. I, I think about Mother Teresa a lot. I guess the most important thing to me was just to, to see that this little woman did um, unbelievable things. And, and it was really all God. I mean, that's one of the things I'm having to learn is it's really not <laughs> about me. And I can't make things happen. So sometimes when I'm trying to make something happen, 
God actually does something completely different that's much better than anything I would have even dreamed of. So I don't know, you know, it's been a long time since I was there. I was pretty, I was very young. I, in retrospect, I probably didn't know very much about Christianity. I certainly hadn't really lived it very long. I was only a few years old in Christ when I got there. But it had a profound effect on me because she was just a radical woman <laughs> in a lot of ways, although she didn't look radical. And she was a woman. I mean, you know, she was a woman who did all these things and didn't have much help until, you know, it had become successful. I guess that's all I'd say to get us started. That might have been more than you wanted. <laughs> Sorry. I'd like you to uh, talk about a couple of things that you already touched on uh, when you talked mm-hmm. Now and then towards the end, it'd really be interesting to talk a little more about your current kind of passion. What is the most significant way in which Mother Teresa personally impacted you? And what are some key ways in which you were shaped by your time in Calcutta? So the ways I was shaped by my time in Calcutta, I think that I came away from Calcutta, at least with the possibility in my mind that we could do radical things that God was a big God and we could do radical things and whatever we did was going to involve some grief and some trouble, but that it would be more valuable than just living life the way I had been living it for sure, which was was very unfocused and there was nothing about that that was nothing about what I was doing that was helping anybody else. And then what was the other, the the first question was how it impacted me. And then the other, oh, shaped by the time in Calcutta. Well, I saw serious poverty. I already cared about the education of the poor. But when I got back, I began to do research inside the worst schools in Los Angeles. I'm talking about schools where kids just go through six or six years and still they're functioning at a second or third grade level. And then I thought, well, you know, we all know that's happening. So I wanted to see, and I think this came from kind of from the Mother Teresa experience. I thought there has to be somebody in these schools who's doing well. So I began to look and have uh, principals and superintendents help me look at who were these like superb, bright stars inside these schools. And then I began to study them because it doesn't help to study teaching in normal or high-performing areas, which we do most of the time, that doesn't really give us much information. So to study these other teachers, so now in the last 10 years, I and my students have studied 100 teachers, actually, who are highly effective in some of the worst schools in Los Angeles. And they're deeply committed. They're just regular people who are relentless about helping kids to learn new things. They're very, they're strict in terms of having a classroom that's pretty, pretty controlled. And yet at the same time, they're humorous, they're warm to the students and the war and students see them that way. You know, they call them strict and fun. So, (laughs) and we've looked at them now all the way from first grade to even community college teachers who teach those students who come in and they can't take a credit course because they they have to take all these non-credit courses first. And I think it was just it was just her example that, you know, in the worst places, there's light and there can be light. You, again, spoke about grievings that we also were very fascinated by when we were reading. Uh, and you say that our grievings reveal our callings, not necessarily mm-hmm. our opportunities. So the question is, mm-hmm. how can we discern God's call 
when we are going, in fact, going through these crises or grievings. And then the second part of that is uh, how do you respond to our sense that our callings change over time? Uh, I do believe our callings change over time. I, I believe that we have different things at different times, and but they build on one another. So at least that was true in my case, and I think it is in other people also that I talk to, like these forerunners I was talking about. It's like eventually we get to the place where where we see kind of the next level, and if we're willing, God will open doors. God opens doors, and, and we try to walk through them. I think that getting to know your skills, I always say this to college students, getting to know your gifts and your skills and things like that are important, but that's fairly easy to do. Often it's the things that grieve us that actually call us to do something, and it may not be our major occupation or job. I mean, like it could be a side thing. Like I have a really good friend who she just here in Texas, she just got very involved with girls in the jail. And she saw that every girl, when they get out of jail, ends up in prostitution because they get out, they have no money, their family doesn't want them back and so forth. And she, this is not, it's not a full-time job, but she has roused the whole community so that this community has these incredible programs, Christian programs, where girls come and live at a center that she thought it was going to be a three-bedroom house. It's a huge church with two wings of dorms where girls go and live for a year where they get their GED, they get other kinds of training, they have three Bible studies a day. I mean, it's just a pretty amazing thing. So I think it's not always our major job or occupation or our major work, but there are things that God leads us to just because of our grieving. You know, honestly, this may be because I'm such such a hard case. <laughs> I don't know. But I almost never grow in Christianity if I'm not suffering. And it could just be a personal agony, you know, about something. But but I, that's always the opportunity to say, you know, to sit and say, okay, God, there's something really wrong, and where do I go now, or what is it? One of the reasons that I think secular psychology and Christian psychology are almost the opposite. You know, secular psychology is just always getting you to think things are fine and define them that way, and Christianity is not. <laughs> In what ways do you see the secular university excluding or marginalizing the Christian faith? while professing to be diverse and inclusive. Okay. I see that it does that almost exclusively. You really cannot raise Christianity in a class as, you know, okay, so what Christian view of this is X without somebody reporting you or getting in trouble. I mean, it's really very serious now. And then you see the student groups like InterVarsity or Campus Crusade or the focus in the Catholic group, and they're just constantly trying to hang on to their position inside the university. Like even at Claremont, I mean, every year our poor university people have to go through one of the six colleges that has decided that because they believe in real marriage and they believe in abstaining from uh, sexual relationships and things like that, that they uh, need to be kicked off campus because they discriminate or they only allow Christians to lead the group. That would never happen with a Muslim group, That would, which would have the same issues. And in terms of, of marginalized in the field, I think it's so marginalized that our fields are so secular 
that people actually don't know there's an alternative anymore. Even Christians don't really realize that there is another story here in psychology. There is another story here in epidemiology. There's another story here in sociology. So just these kind of wild uh, accusations of Christianity run rampant in the university, and no one ever really contests them. So people can say outlandish things and, and just get away with it. I was on a panel one day, and there were two other people, and they were in religion. And it was a panel for inner varsity students had put it together on the Bible. And uh, both of these people, one was a gay man, one was a lesbian woman, and they were both in the religion studies program. And they would say, you know, really awful things about Christianity. And then they would tell the students to queer the Bible, which means to look at every single person in the Bible and uh, presume that they might have been homosexual. And so it just went on and on and on. <laughs> Probably somebody, one of the students, asked some question that was just could only have been directed at like Christianity. And one of the, and the woman participant on the panel who was sitting next to me rolls her eyes and looks at me and says, you'd have to ask the believer that, you know, it's it's unbelievable. But I, I mean, I'm so used to it now. The derogatory, the way in which Christianity has become in the university, almost the most evil thing. So People will say to me, well, Christianity and all the wars. And I'll say, well, when was the last war you know of that Christianity was one of the major players? And then, of course, they can't say anything. (laughs) So it's just, it's almost unbelievable. But I mean, it's true in our media anyway, that people can just say things that have no relation to facts. And, you know, a lot of people pick it up and believe it. I think it's very serious. I do think that there are a lot of secular scholars who are not hostile like that, a lot of secular scholars just don't have a clue that there's an alternative to what they're teaching. And I I think that's sad because that's how far Christianity has been moved out of the university. And yet, all these universities were started by Christianity, by Christians. I mean, the first universities were in 1100. They come straight out of monasteries in Europe. Until you get to the late 1800s with uh, Johns Hopkins and possibly Cornell, I forget when it started. There's not a single university that's not started by Christians. And people just have completely lost that. So when Christianity opened itself to secularism, secularism eventually moved in and threw it out of the university, just took it over. So this question is about... uh... The secular people in the secular structures in the university, you indicated that many academics would consider themselves spiritual, but not religious, proud of being mm-hmm. without God. And can you give us a sense of this inner makeup, if you will, of our secular colleagues in the university? Well, they're basically secular humanists, and they basically fall back on the man makes himself from Sartre, all the existentialists. and nihilists and the all who basically taught that human beings are responsible for making themselves and they can make themselves good. And that's the way they feel. Most of them, and and I did, I mean, I'm just talking about myself, really. I felt like I was a really good person. You know, I had that image. Those of you who are older, probably none of you are as old as me, but (laughs) I have this image of like Shirley MacLaine dancing on the beach, being free. 
but it's a it's a kind of individualism. It's an individualistic freedom and an individualistic definition of what's good. When I was like that, it wasn't as dangerous as it is now. I see kids whose parents even contact me and say, my child got into some bizarre Hindu-like worship of this priestess. This is a real example. And we don't know what to do. I mean, the, the, the child, who's not really a child, he's in his 20s, just became mentally disturbed. I mean, some of the spiritual things that are going on now are basically demonic. And, and even I played around with that kind of stuff. But, but the spiritual, not religious, that our colleagues talk about are, it's just, I can be good without God. And I understand that from the perspective of where I was, because I had no idea what being good was to God and what he could do. So I never had a a plumb line from which to decide, is this really good or is this just arrogant, right? Once you come to Christ, then you have this possibility that people on the outside do not have. And that is that you have a possibility to look inside you and to ask God to reveal to you who you really are in this area. And that doesn't happen if you're just believing that you're spiritual and not religious. And I use this example of, I don't think it's in that book. I think it's in another book. But the person who led me to Christ is a pretty tough mentor, (laughs) I guess you'd call it. One day, uh, we're walking out of a restaurant. Stop me if you've read this, but I think it's in the other book. Walking out of this restaurant, it was a new agey restaurant. It was early in my uh, coming to Christ. He had a little tiny Toyota Celica, and I was parked on the street, I think. And there was a woman that was in the restaurant with us who was kind of the leader of, um, in that case, the San Diego sort of spiritual and not religious group. She was very attractive and sort of holding court. And she left right before we did. And then when we walked out, she had this large car. And admittedly, the parking lot was tight, but she had pulled her car out and hit his car, his little tiny car in the middle of the parking lot. And he just walked over. Uh, You might remember he's Native American. He walked over and stood next to his car. And she jumped out of her car. He didn't say a word. She jumped out of her car, and she just started raving at him. And I don't even remember what she was saying, just raving at him. And then all of a sudden, this woman, prior to this, looked like she was all light and goodness and sweetness inside that restaurant. So she's raving. And he, she takes a breath, and he says to her, this is who you really are. Now, admittedly, <laughs> that was not what she wanted to hear. <laughs> and so she raves even more. And that happened like three times. The last time he said, this is who you really are, she ran off and left. But when I'm watching that, I realized that's who I was. That's exactly who I was. I was pretending to be good and spiritual and all full of light, but I could have gone into a rage at any moment like that. And in Christianity, you just, you, if you, if you do that, you know you have a place to go, number one. God reveals it to you. Number two, you know you have a place to go, and you know that you can not you can you can be forgiven for it, and you can also be cleansed from it. And that possibility does not exist in the secular world. It just does not exist. It's time for open Q and A. 
Considering your concern about the university today, what thoughts do you have about training young people, whether they're Christian or not, to be critical thinkers? Do you see any instances of young people challenging or at least thinking carefully about the ideas that are presented to them in the university? And I just want to say I'm I'm particularly interested in this as I raise my own children and I'd like them to grow into adults who can think clearly and, you know, make make decisions about the things that are presented to them. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, this kind of critical thinking piece. Yeah, I think we have to do that. And I, I, one of the things that we've got to do is to get the church to start doing that with young people's groups. I don't see that happening. Like, I read this study that said that 50% of Christians in the church between 18 and or 16 and something wanted to go into um, science, and they well, only 1% had ever heard anything said about science in the church. So I think that what we've got to do is we've got to, in the churches, get to the youth groups, especially the upper high school groups, and as they're thinking about college. And really, for me, it would be teaching worldviews. And I don't even like the word worldviews. But we need to teach them what they're getting ready to hear and how to analyze that. Mm -hmm. You know, what's wrong about that and what's right about that? Because it's never going to be completely 100% away from Christianity usually. There's going to be some overlap. But the work against Christian thought starts the day they get there. And it's relentless. It's really relentless. And it's not always intentionally that. Sometimes it is. But it's that their faculty are don't know Christianity. They it's just like, you know, it used to be twenty years ago it'd be really hard to grow up in the United States and not know something about Christianity. Mm-hmm. Today that's not that's easy. And we need to we do need to teach them to think critically and to look at things and analyze it, because some of it you can just see by looking, you know, who do you, which, what people do you see that you would like to live your life like and go from there? You, I think you hit on the thing that we have to do. We yeah, just have well, to do it. And it seems to me that what I see a lot in both adults and children is a fear of talking with people about ideas and I mean, this is really general, but but I just see I actually I homeschool my kids and it uh-huh. is like a wonderful gift and I love to be with them and I love to talk with them, but it is the hardest thing for me to find a community of people who are thinking carefully and you know, whether they're Christian or not. I mean, <laughs> because I feel right. I feel like there's kind of this little Christian huddle of homeschoolers. I mean, uh-huh. this broad, you know category, but there are a lot of people who homeschool out of fear because they don't want to send their kids mm-hmm. into the world too early. And then mm-hmm. there, there are other homeschoolers who are kind of mad about the little Christian clique. And so they have other, I mean, so I feel like I'm in this kind of no man's land, but <laughs> I just, you know, it's such an amazing like you're the perfect person. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> That's where God puts people. <laughs> I, I mean, I just, I, I mean, I love what I do with my my kids, but it is, it's hard to find support and and resources to help them learn to think and to learn to to engage mm-hmm. with ideas. So, yeah, we'll we'll keep working toward that. Yeah, I, right, right. I think that I think there are resources out there. Some of them are what you might 
call and I, I would agree a little bit too fluffy Christian or something. I don't know. But I think just also talking to them about the things they see in the culture and, you know, how they how they analyze it. So they're used to seeing things that Christian kids are sometimes protected from, but they're used to seeing it in the culture. And then then you actually explore that. I think you're right. If you protect them too much, then they could even be attracted to that kind of really strangeness because it's so different from what they've always known and they want to try it. Yeah, I think that happens to a lot of kids. I think it happened to this kid who went with the Hindu priestess kind of thing. So it is, it is important. And there are a lot of resources online. I'm overwhelmed by them, so <laughs> I will never do them. But just listening to people think, like, I would love to hear John Lennox think, mm-hmm. you know. And there's a lot of a lot of videos of him talking, a lot of the Veritas uh, things where people will ask him questions and he'll answer the question. But he's he's a good example of just getting kids to see somebody who's thinking mm-hmm. rightly, as opposed to just preaching. But he he takes their questions seriously and he really just sits in an armchair and answers them. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. Sounds like you have a big call, Anne. <laughs> It it feels <laughs> right now. It feels like a right. tiny call, <laughs> but I'm just taking you know one step at a time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think you know. I think every. I think there's so many people who feel like you do, and they're lost. They don't know what to do, or they don't know where to. What the resources are, you know, where are the books or the videos, or you know, just trying to pull some things together. You know, the Prager videos are good. I mean, there's a lot of things out there. To me, it's almost overwhelming. But someone would have to go through and and sort of carefully pick them. Mm-hmm. There's a question from Kate. Kate, would you like to go ahead, then? Okay. So thanks, Mary, for your presentation. It was fantastic. It's it's just great to have this perspective on what's happening in the academy. I um, Jasmine mentioned that we were shaking our heads in agreement. I was one shaking my head in agreement with a lot of what you were saying and taking copious notes. So again, I just appreci- appreciate what you said and, and shared with us. A lot of it sounds like it's coming from your heart. My question, and this is in light of what you've said as far as, let me just go back to what you said at the beginning, and that is said the ways to go about changing the academy is that we need to come up with strategies for influencing the culture. Um, and that if we're strategically placed, like you said, being in the academy or being in media, being in the banks, are ways to go about that. So you obviously were strategically placed at the time where you could apply for sabbatical and and then were approved for sabbatical. But I, I bring being part academic, part practitioner, I have this question about, you know, what was the university's response, especially in light of the hostility that the academy has toward Christians, the growing hostility that the academy has toward Christians? What was the university's initial response to your sabbatical proposal for working with Mother Teresa, where you met with resistance initially, and what was your response to that? Oh, okay. That's a good question. Actually, they didn't have much of a response. I think they saw her as a little innocent little woman who was just helping the poor, <laughs> and that I'd be fine. Wow. <laughs> so I was just going for a vacation. 
Yeah, because they don't um because they don't take Christianity seriously. In that case, it really worked for me. It was like, oh, she's just going to see to India, and, you know. That's, I think that's what they thought. And when I came back and started speaking about it, that's when there was more trouble. Actually, I was removed from a deanship pretty much over this kind of thing. I was never told what it really was about or anything. I'd been told that I was the best dean there and I was making all this money about two weeks before I was removed. <laughs> but, you know, and, and that, that was a whole other adventure of just trying to, you know, learn about forgiveness and keep moving. But I think in the beginning when I went, wanted to go to Mother Teresa, nobody thought there was any problem because they still, they still thought I was who I was before and I had just started to change. So nobody saw it as an issue. Mm. So in retrospect, if you had known that you would come up against the resistance after mm-hmm. you came back, mm-hmm. Would you have still gone? I think so. By then, I was hungry. I would say I was even starved. So when I met Christ, even though I didn't understand it for a long time, I I had this gift that was totally a gift of God that I loved reading the Bible. And even though I probably understood less than 5 or 10% of it, every once in a while, I would read something and it would just, it would just kind of jump in your spirit that this was true. Mm. And so I was already very enamored with Christ. And I was meeting people from different denominations, but they were all what I would call little low orthodox. Mm. But they were just like showing up and inviting me to things. And so I was hungry and and I was being fed. And so I think I would have just kept going. Mm. And besides when you're as far out as me, you, you know, you feel you're you're trained to be rebellious anyway. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that, that probably worked in my favor, <laughs> yeah. or in God's favor. <laughs> yeah, but that's a really good question. I, you know, now I'm at the end. It probably they they all say, well, she's at her in the end of career. She'll eventually, you know, get out of here. The problem. I still have lots of students and. I probably graduate, well, I do graduate more students than any other faculty member in my program and maybe even in the school. And I have a lot of Christian students that faculty don't know are Christian. So we had this opportunity, this grant, and now we're getting the book. So all my students will get chapters in the book. And so it's hard to do anything. But what what I notice is the people who are no one really wants to follow up on anything that I do that's Christian. Okay, so if I'm in a faculty meeting or I'm talking to faculty, no one will ever ask me anything about this this part of my work. They'll ask mm-hmm. me about other things, but not that. They just don't want to know. And then I, there are faculty members, especially since all the Christianity Today things come out, and you know the um, the university media people, they're sort of they just put things out. If you're in the media, they you know, share it with everybody. I have noticed that there are people who really don't even want to look at me. But mm-hmm. since I've come back from this sabbatical, because I just finished a sabbatical. But I understand in a way. I mean, I I still remember who I was. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I and I get it. I I believe that one of here's one of the first things that shocked me about Christianity. And I noticed it at Calcutta with the sisters. And I had noticed it before in 
when I would go to like a Christian conference or something. And that is that Christians can look each other in the eye. Now, I know this sounds really strange, but when you're as far out as I was, you don't really look people in the eye. And I still have colleagues who cannot look me in the eye. And I, you, it, it's, very, it's very strange to say it, but those are the kind of things that you begin to notice, that, there are, that some people can look you in the eye, some people really can't. And that kind of tells you how far away they are. You know, talking to, your, talking to colleagues about Christianity, I know that we try to do that uh, through Campus Crusade and University and all these different places, but that is really, really hard to do. You kind of have to be be there, and then if somebody wants to know, they'll come to you. So I have had faculty, two faculty members who have said, well, one faculty member said a few years after they had let me go as dean, he said, you know, we can tell that you're Christian because we can tell you forgave us. So it's just things like that. So whatever way God will use something, and you just have to be prepared to on the moment if you get one. Right. But, you know, people do watch you. I think you had also shared some of this in the book, starting a class with five students. And I'm teaching that class right now, and I have 20 students. That's unheard of. I mean, that's like I can cut them off at eight because it's a PhD class. You know, you have to have five, but you could cut them. I could, as a professor, cut them off at eight. So I have 20 now. I used to always have an atheist or two, you know, who would just came in to try and torture you, I guess. (laughs) But I never have any atheists anymore. I have people who either were Christian and they've walked away. They are Christian and they're still strong. They might be Catholic, might be Protestant, or they're strong in another faith. I've had two Muslims that that are very strong in their faith and uh, a Buddhist monk. And, And then I have Every once in a while, a person who really knows nothing about Christianity, usually somebody really, really young, and then people who are strong, and then people who just don't know anything. And I have seen a lot of movement in the class. So I've had students come to me the next semester and say, I went back to church after that class, and I found a really great church, or somehow they renewed what they were doing or what they had done before. So I love that class. And I'm still allowed to teach it because I was told by the new transdisciplinary director that it's the most popular transdisciplinary course in the university. People are starved. You know, I think that even people who are not Christian are starved to hear something different, something that might be encouraging, something that might be. And they know people who are Christian. And I think they suspect, like, what, why is that person so happier? Why is that person like the way they are? Sometimes it's just the other students that bring them in. I have one guy taking the class again, just sitting in, because I actually have two guys sitting in this year, this semester, because they had the class before and they just want to do it again. I have one guy who I I think is probably somebody who's going to be very significant in terms of the project I mentioned earlier. He's a psychology student, and he's really struggling with his dissertation because his faculty don't understand him. Because he believes that he understands certain things about the difference between Christianity and 
secular psychology that are really significant. And I think he probably does. So we're going to have lunch next week. But it's just a place, I guess it's a little respite for people. <laughs> but they work hard. They have to read it. We all have to read an atheist book. We all read now that book uh, by Marcello Pera called, Marcello Pera is an Italian philosopher who's an atheist. And he's written a book called Why We Should Call Ourselves Christian. <laughs> and that is the name of it, even in Italy. So, And that book is a, is a good book for a group like this to read because uh, he starts out talking about the difference between the word liberal in Europe versus America. And then he starts going through basically logically why we should call ourselves Christian because Christianity is the only thing that has ever worked. There's actually three major European philosophers who have come out and said that. One is a German, Jürgen Habermas, Marcelo Pera, Italian, and Pierre Manet, who's uh, French. So it's kind of fun to be able to find those things and then share them with students because then they they say to themselves, they say, well, there's something here I didn't know about, right? Maybe I should check this out. There really is something to Christianity that's also intellectual. It also can be can be dealt with intellectually, I guess is a better way to say it. So I love that class. <laughs> I'd like to ask, actually ask you a variant of a question that I asked to our book club members at our last meeting, and then a, a sort of related question that comes to me from, from what you've been talking about tonight and your, your current, current work. Um, so the question mm -hmm. I had asked before is, how can we serve sacrificially in the academy? So I'm thinking of modeling myself after Mother Teresa in my teaching and my service. How can I do that well? without reinforcing gender inequality in the academy, without having that mommy work prevent me or prevent women more generally from advancing into positions of leadership in the university. And then sort of related to that, I think, is how can we bring a Christian worldview into our work without having that cost, of, cost us positions of leadership or respect on campus? And I feel like the, in both these cases, there there might be a place where we are being called individually to sacrifice, right? To, to uh -huh. say career advancement is not what's important. Advancing the kingdom is what's important. And yet, uh -huh. I'm concerned about this more systemic place, right? If they're removing you from a position of authority because they're concerned about the direction your scholarship has taken, or they're concerned about the direction your personal life has taken in the way that that influences your job. Uh -huh. Perhaps that that's a point of grief for you, right? Personally, perhaps that's what God is calling you to accept or at that moment. But it, it strikes me, not only is that then a cost to you personally, it's a cost to your your opportunity to actually have a voice in the academy, right? To shape things. I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts. How can we balance these things? Okay. Well, I think at any given moment, it's different for each of us. I, not having a family, I don't have that balance. I mean, I don't have that particular part of the balance that you would have to balance. Mm -hmm. But I would say that I feel like I have a voice, but it's pretty much directed to my students. Okay, so it's really my students that I'm influencing, not particularly my colleagues nor the university. So the university, I would say, pretty much tolerates me. And one of the reasons they tolerate me is, like I said, I have a lot of students. I get them graduated. I work really hard with them. I help them learn to write if I need to help them learn to write. And I spend time with them. That's kind of like inside my little world in the university. That's my biggest contribution. I do now, I would think you could do this in history. 
But I very specifically say, okay, so here's the way people look at pedagogy, for example. So teaching theory. So here's the way the behaviorists look at it. Here's the way the constructivists look at it. Here's the way the post-constructivists look at it. This is the way the multiculturalists look at it. This is the way the critical theorists look at it. And this is the way Christians look at it, right? And I just explicitly discuss each of those. So when I, and there's readings that go with every single one of those. So I'm just trying to teach them all of the ways to think about this field of pedagogical theory in education. That's the way I integrate Christianity. I don't try to make it the main point. I just try to offer that this is one of the views of pedagogical things. This is one of the views of curriculum, you know, so they might read Dorothy Sayers' work on lost tools of learning or those kinds of things. So that's pretty much the way, I guess I've probably given up trying to influence the university at any other level. But at the same time, I think that just our being there influences the university. I think it, I think people do know that you're different. I think they wonder <laughs> why you are. And just little, little hints actually help them come to different conclusions about what they've been told about Christianity. Did I answer? Is there something else that I missed? Yeah, no, that's helpful. I guess it it also is a a question of what each of us individually is being called to do, right? That we're each placed in a particular position. And so we can't can't do other than what God's calling us individually to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to think about how we can corporately be responsible, I guess, on these levels as well. It's kind of where I'm, I'm sitting on this. Corporately, as in all the those of us who are Christian in the university? Uh, yeah, I guess, you know, I think trying to think about how God might use Christians in the university, collect, use us collectively as a body, right? That each of us is being called to different things. Right. But still, I still feel a sense of responsibility, I guess, to we want Christians in to become deans, right? We want Christians to respected for their research as well, or whatever it might be. Right, exactly, exactly. And I think that's sort of where the upper room gatherings is going, is that we need to get together. I, I kind of grieved, grieved when both Campus Crusade and InterVarsity, I think back in maybe 2006, maybe before that, stopped having faculty conferences. Not that they were, you know, organized to actually do this, but there was a sense that that there was a body of us and that we all had a role and they were different roles or different people had developed different roles and they gave you the ideas. You know, I remember Ken Elzinga talking about how he invited students over and how when a student came to him with a problem, he would offer right there in the office to pray for them and, you know, all the ways that he did what he did. And I I think we've lost that. We've lost that idea that that we're all struggling (laughs) and we should all be sharing this. And then, of course, for the upper room gatherings, we've just lost the idea that that Christ speaks into every one of these fields. He speaks into history. He speaks, I mean, he is history. He speaks into every field, education, sociology, science. And we need to somehow find a way to articulate that not only inside the academy, but also outside the academy. Because we have, just by virtue of being a professor, you have some clout with the North Dakota major newspapers, for example. You have you have clout with them, and we need to just gather together and really talk about how we do that. You know, one of our board members 
writes, uh, works, is a sociologist and he works in the area of family. And he did a study of families, what families thrive the most. And one of the things that was in the study was not the major part of the study, but was how do children do who grow up in homosexual families? And it wasn't, then the data wasn't good. So he got all these attacks all over the country over this huge data uh, study that he did. And then uh, he had tenure, but he was going up for promotion. And his faculty voted against it. His dean voted against him. His The faculty senate voted against him. And we were all praying. We have a whole bank of intercessors, too, for the upper room gathering. We were all praying that the only, the only thing that would have saved him was for the president to change change his vote or to ha- vote differently. And he did. I mean, this president had the moral courage to stand up and say, I support this guy's tenure to the board. That is not tenure. He already had tenure. His promotion. And and so it went through. But it's that kind of camaraderie. I mean, he we had our board meeting at a time when he was completely overwhelmed with this situation. and. You know, he will tell you, too, that just getting together with other people who were like-minded actually helped him a great deal. That's the kind of thing when when you feel like you're the only one. As far as I know, I am the only one now at the graduate university who's a Christian, who's a, who would say, you know, I'm a Christian. There were two others, but they're, they both retired. So, I, you know, we've got to just get together more, I think, and, and work together more. How easy or difficult was it to critical to, to critically evaluate the foundational assumptions of your discipline, especially to discern assumptions that are false and figure out truth that has been left out? Because you speak about four different things to do, like um, in terms of stepping back and critically evaluating uh, the subject that each person is kind of learning or even teaching. And we talked about this last time, thought about the fact that this is like an extra layer of work. It is kind of hard enough as it is to uh, step back from what you've been Mm -hmm. thinking and think differently to begin with. And then, you know, so it might be a little easier to kind of, and less threatening to kind of affirm truth already that is in there. But then how do you step back and kind of critically begin to ask a different set of questions and say like, is there anything like false here? (laughs) And uh, is there truth that has been left out? A couple of things that you said uh, in the book. So, okay. Yeah. I'm glad you asked that question. I mean, one of the things that struck me about Mother Teresa, she always answered with a scripture. <laughs> you just—you never heard her talk that she wasn't using a scripture. That was pretty amazing to me. And I had already sort of gotten this gift. I believe it was just a gift from the Lord to want to read the Bible. So you know, there I was reading Proverbs when the whole Christopher Hitchens thing came up and saw the two Proverbs. But I think the most exciting thing for me, and and this is what we're going to ask people who come to the upper room gathering to do, is one year. Okay, say I love to read the young the one-year Bible. I'm not saying that I'm always at the end in December, but (laughs) close. And one year I decided just to read the Bible as an educator. So I just asked God to show me anything that had to just make it jump out of the pages if it had anything to do with my field, right? Of course, there's a lot to do with the poor. And I was amazed at how much there was. Well, first of all, you never find the word education in the Bible, not there. Secondly, you, whenever you see the word knowledge, it's always associated with the mind. 
But anytime you see the word understanding, it is never associated with the mind. It's always associated with the heart. And then you get to, like, another thing that really jumped out at me was is in Second Peter 1. And I think it's probably the exact sequence of education that education should follow. So, he, so Peter says, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. So, I mean, really in education today, all we care, really all we think we, we're doing is knowledge. But he says faith and virtue precede knowledge. And then to knowledge, you add self-control. And to self-control, you add perseverance. And to perseverance, you add godliness. And to godliness, you add the uh, love of your brother and then the love of God. And if you really just look at that sequence, it's like, oh, well, that's a perfect sequence of education. I believe that that's probably true of any field that you could read the Bible asking God to give you that revelation. And that was just like a really wonderful experience for me. So I actually use that sometimes in a lecture when I'm saying, okay, so this is what Christians believe. I'll pull out the Second Peter scripture and I'll tell them that even that knowledge is always associated with the mind, understanding is never associated with the mind. I just, I don't know. I think that's the way we have to begin to discern and to move forward in our field, I think. I just think it's probably all there. It's not going to be using the words we use in sociology or education. Let me talk about pedagogy. It's not even going to be using the word education, but, but that's what's going on. appreciate what you said just now, Mary, because I think particularly those of us who work with grad students who try to get them to begin to think this way sort of look at us like, you know, deer in the headlights sort of thing when we start asking what does your faith mm-hmm. have, you know, how does your faith inform the way you think about mechanical engineering or, right? you know, whatever their field is and they're, they're like, I don't know, the current flows the same way, whether you believe or you don't believe, <laughs> right? And so I think folks in the humanities are forced into some of these questions a lot quicker, if you will, than, mm-hmm. than folks in the sciences and the science folks are just, having the debate over origins. So it's it would be fun to take a group of students through the Bible in a year or if you have mm-hmm. them, you know, if you have them on campus for a year, it would be really fun to do that and ask mm-hmm. once a quarter or something, okay, where are you in your read through the Bible through the year and what have you seen thus far? That would be a that would be mm-hmm. a fun exercise, fun. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well it's great talking to all of you. I hope I get to see you all again. It'd be fun. Yeah, that's maybe. what we need. We need, that. we need a gathering, right? I think so. I've had a lot of faculty women over the past year that I've bumped into on various campuses say, "Women in the academy and professions needs to gather us together for a retreat." So that's in the back of my head. <laughs> okay. Well, God bless all of you. Thank you all, and especially you, Mary. We really appreciated your presence and wisdom. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Good night, everyone. You've been listening to WAPI Hour. WAP, Women in the Academy and Professions, is a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. Thanks for joining our conversation. We would love to hear your feedback. To offer it or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections that we provide, including hosting a WAPI Hour conversation like this on your campus, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.com. 
www.thepurposeofgiving.org. 